Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known fact of the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. known fact about my guest today, her memoir about growing up with her father, the legendary Leonard Bernstein, what it was like to live in a household filled with one icon after another, and how do you hold on to yourself in the face of that? Well, she has, and I am so, so grateful to have had Jamie Bernstein on the podcast. Welcome, Jamie. Enjoy. A-OK. Everyone, my guest today is Jamie Bernstein. Jamie is an author, broadcaster, filmmaker, and concert narrator. She has traveled the world extensively, speaking about music as well as about her father, Leonard Bernstein. Her film, the documentary Crescendo, The Power of Music, has won numerous prizes, and you can watch it on iTunes. Her memoir, which is just extraordinary, is called Famous Father Girl. I just finished it, and I'm just thrilled to get to talk to you. Um, As I close the book, here you are to talk to. It's it's an extraordinary thing. Welcome, the brilliant Jamie Bernstein, to the podcast. Hi, Jamie. Oh, hi, Lana. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, my God. I'm so happy to have you here. I want to ask you something. Do you still find yourself uh, answering to whether it's pronounced Bernstein or Bernstein, or does everybody understand at this point how to say your name? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody seems to understand yet. And I was always very assiduous about correcting everybody, but you know what? I don't care anymore. <laughs> I actually don't care anymore. It seems like in the United States, people are more comfortable saying Bernstein. And you know, it's amazing how people's ears just hear what they expect to hear because I can be introduced as Bernstein and they will say, pleased to meet you, Ms. Bernstein. Like they literally don't hear it. It's really interesting. Well, you were competing also with the Bernstein Bears, a very popular children's book and cartoon. So, you know, there was a lot, there was a lot to contend with there. Yeah, but but, you know, they were S-T-A-I-N, Bernstein. So I always thought that maybe that would make a, a little bit of separation. But I mean, you know, people don't call him Albert Einstein. <laughs> they do not. That is a very good point. And after today, I don't think anyone will make the Bernstein Bernstein mistake. I feel like we will have finally put that to rest. There is I, so I don't know. I'll make you a bet. Okay. I will win the bet that it will not solve the problem. It will not change, even with my many beloved listeners. Well, well, the most important thing is that um, there is this legacy that that lives and is so powerful. And, you know, having just read your book, what's extraordinary is we are we are speaking in 2022. Obviously, this broadcast will live forever, but it is the year that many of the great Leonard Bernstein works are sort of back in the in the collective consciousness with the new version of West Side Story that came out and the new recording that has come out. And so it really is bringing people back to their own memory of the first time they fell in love with 
whatever it was that introduced them to your father and his music and his passion for it. And even just looking through clips of the recording that Gustavo Dudamel just did with uh, the, the new uh, Philharmonic recording of, of West Side Story. I'm like, I bet Jamie was in the room during some of this recording. You had to be or involved in the film. So I want to start there and then we can go backwards and wind our way home again. Uh, sure. Yes, I was in that room a few times. You know, when it came to this new version of West Side Story, uh, I don't need to tell you how thrilled my brother and sister and I were that it was happening. And it turned out that Mr. Spielberg was pretty much the nicest guy in the world, uh, which we did not necessarily expect or know about, but he's such a menschy, warm, authentic human being. Not what you expect from someone, you know, as mega as he is. So anyway, our involvement in the film was, was obviously restricted to the musical issues. Um, we didn't have anything that much to say about the other aspects of the film. But when it came to the music, that was our department. And so we were around for a lot of those recording sessions. My brother, Alexander, was kind of our point person for the film. So he was there for pretty much everything, all the shoots and everything. He's the one who really got the big picture. Um, and I went to a couple of the shoot days, which were amazingly fascinating in that special filmmaking combination of fascinating and tedious at the same time. So, but um, I went to a bunch of the recording sessions for the music and uh, I can't even tell you how thrilling it was to hear the music being uh, evoked at this top level because we had members of the New York Philharmonic and also members of the LA Philharmonic um, those sessions I was not at because I was in L.A. and that all happened because of COVID. But I was here for the New York sessions, many of them, and Gustavo Duramel conducting and David Newman, who knows West Side Story backwards and forwards like no one on this earth. So it, it was all being performed at the, in the optimum way. And we were just beside ourselves. It was so exciting. There was one recording session when uh, they were recording the, the special trumpet obligato thing that happens in the mambo. And, uh, you know, it, it's the absolute peak of the mambo when, when they're all just dancing their brains out. And, and then this trumpet player does this sort of, you know, riffing thing. There's all this stuff that the, trumpet player is supposed to do. So for this section, they brought in a trumpet specialist who's one incredible thing. I mean, I'm sure he can do other things, but this special talent that this trumpet player had was to play those insane high notes that you don't even think a trumpet player can produce. And so they started this section and he was doing uh, his thing on top and everybody came apart at the seams. Everybody had to like scream and shout and clap and stomp and because we had never heard anything like it. And it's all in there in the film. They, you can't even believe what this trumpet player is doing. It's, it's so virtuosic. Wow. I, I can't even imagine what it was for you to be in the, in the room as that's happening. And, you know, it, it also leads me to want to bring up someone who, was a, a godparent to you growing up, Stephen Sondheim. I mean, you had so many of these legends in your in your living room, in your kitchen, your entire life. And, and Stephen is one of them who you seem to have a really close, beautiful, <clears throat> excuse me, friendship with. And so obviously we lost him recently. Um, I know he was involved in the movie and, and Ariana, many of the cast members talked about how meaningful it was to, to work with him on this project. Did you get to connect with him again during the, the recording or in the past year or so? Well, I can't tell you how heartbreaking it was to lose Steve Sondheim overall, because yes, he was like a part of our family, but to lose him, 
you know, three days before the film was finally going to be shown in front of an audience. And when he saw a private screening of it back in last April, he told Steven Spielberg that he could not wait to see the film with an audience because he was so excited about the film, he loved it. And he couldn't wait to, to see an audience react to it. And he just missed that experience by mere days. So that really hurt. And, you know, uh, Steve Sondheim was not famous in his lifetime for being a warm and fuzzy guy. He was notoriously caustic and edgy and, you know, you, you, you wouldn't get, want to get on his wrong side. And um, he was famously snarky and quick on the trigger and, and all that stuff. But in our family, uh, you know, when my brother and sister and I were growing up, Steve was so relaxed in our midst that, uh, anyway, we personally ourselves never experienced his snark being directed at us in any way. And so he seemed affectionate and avuncular. And in fact, the, the joke that he and Spielberg had is that they were both Uncle Steve. And so um, at the premiere, uh, when uh, Spielberg made a, a little speech to us and, and the other author's representatives, and he said how sad he was that that Steve Sondheim couldn't be there. And he said, now I'm the only Uncle Steve and I hate that. And it was so touching. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And also the idea that these two men, as you described, is as their reputation that preceded them might not be warm and fuzzy, that in fact they are. And and we have these ideas. And you know, it was really incredible reading your book. And I and I you know, was in awe of sort of the ways in which all of you have inherited not just your father's passion for music, but like, it is a language and, and it's like math. Not everybody gets it, right? It, it, and there's something about the way you are able to deeply inhabit the world of music and share it with others that's so incredible to me but it also I have to just talk to you about something because so much of the book talks about and I understand this I have many friends whose whose parents you know we talked about the sirens before we started recording just having living legends who are also your parent right um and what it is to navigate that and what it is when you have your own artistic spark that you want to explore and in this case it was in the world of music. It wasn't a different artistic lane. Um, and, and how much you went back and forth yourself deciding if that is a career path you could wanted to take. You do a performance at the Kennedy Center Honors for your dad, uh, where you come out and sing, I believe, a song that you wrote for the occasion. Um, the Kennedy Center honors are notoriously filled with the creme de la creme of, of performers who are paying tribute to the, to the honoree, and in this case, your dad. And I just have to tell you, it is one of the most composed, beautiful, brilliant performances. You look fucking gorgeous, <laughs> and you pan to your dad, and he's a wreck. Like he is just so overwhelmed. I mean, I can't even imagine how heady that whole night is, but then in the middle of that, to have his daughter come out and not only the sweetness of it being his daughter, but you crushed it at that moment. Oh, thanks for saying so. I, Jamie, I don't think I've ever been so nervous in my entire life. That's what I want to talk to you about. How did you make your legs go across the threshold from backstage to onstage in that particular venue? I get like a small club in the West Village. We're talking the Kennedy Center honors. Yeah. Pressure, you think? <laughs> Pressure much? Everybody in the universe was in that room. And of course, then it was broadcast to the rest of the yeah, universe. Globally. Yeah. I was, uh, I don't think I've ever been so terrified about a performance in my life. And I was already terrified about performing. It wasn't what I felt good about when I performed music. I was always 
kind of a nervous wreck. And there was always this little voice in my head saying, oh, who do you think you are? And, mm-hmm. and, and who do you think you're fooling? And, you know, you can't do this and you're not good enough. You know, that, that voice. And I never did get that voice to shut up for me in, wor- in the world of music. In music right. As a performer. As a performer of music. Music, correct. Later on, you know, when I started talking about music and, and making presentations of all kinds that involved words and not singing or playing an instrument, I discovered to my astonishment that I, I wasn't nervous at all. I mean, I was, you know, I had adrenaline and everything, but not panic. And uh, that, that was a big revelation for me. But anyway, back there at the Kennedy Center, th- that was the apotheosis of my terror. And it was the first time that I ever had this really weird a physical reaction to stress in which uh, my extremities started buzzing and my fingers, luckily this happened right after I got off the stage where, where I think that the burst of relief kind of released all the stress and everything. And my fingers started buzzing and kind of curling inward. And I, I named this phenomenon dead chicken-itis. And I had it again a few times later in my life in other very stressful situations. Uh, but that was the first time it happened was in the wings of the Kennedy Center Opera House. Um, I, I was dying. And I was also very worried about this song, which I had co-written with a friend of mine, David Pack. And, you know, it had a normal structure, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, and then a final chorus, something, you know. And they made me cut uh, the, the, one of the verses. So it went straight from the first verse to the chorus to the bridge, which makes no sense at all. Right. So the, the song was sort of, I felt like it was meandering mm. in this very uh, unsatisfying way. And that was just one other thing to worry about. Anyway, also remembering I'm, the new, right, you learn it one way, you know it one way, and then on the night, remembering not to do it the way you've written it. Also, when nerves have kicked in and, and, and remembering words and all that stuff up. All that stuff. And yeah. I, I was really bad at remembering words. So, okay. I mean, what didn't I have to worry about? Everything. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, the, I just thought, wow, there are very few moments in life where the kind of pressure this one is withstanding. Just, just the the public scrutiny, the private scrutiny. And then I wondered if you could see your dad while you were singing it. Oh, uh, well, you know, on the video, they, they had the camera trained right on him and you could see that he was crying and, and very uh, so moved. moved. Yeah. And I couldn't really see that from where I was standing on the stage because the presidential box where he was sitting is um, smack in the middle of, of the first tier of boxes. And so, you know, it's like the, the apex of the horseshoe and that's as far away from the stage as you can possibly be, if you think about it. Right. All the right. way at the other end of the hall. So I couldn't really see what his right. Was. So you're just dying and you have no idea how it's going. Um, and then you are surrounded at the end with, you know, Comden and Green and Phyllis Newman and Joe Namath. Yeah. <laughs> Like you do, like you do. Um, Your book is filled with um, uh, such a breathtakingly specific view for the reader of what it was like to grow up in the Dakota with the Bernsteins, with all of these luminaries that we've already named, Betty Bacall popping in, like it's an endless... um, you know, conga line of the <laughs> brightest and best and, and most beautiful minds, um, specifically in the world of music, many in American musical theater, um, with, with the backdrop of a mother who had been an extraordinary Chilean artist of note before she met your dad, um, and sort of understanding how her role shifted into being more of the support of the maestro as as you guys um, dealt with a career that just took off in this, you know, unprecedented way for a conductor 
to be famous in this sort of way, to be a movie star and a conductor. Um, do you have any understanding or, or concept, you know, you called your book famous, famous father girl and sort of told, tell a story about how it was sort of not the nicest, you were being teased about who your father was. At a very young age, there was an awareness in your community that your father was well known. Were you aware of that uh, until kids sort of started making fun of you because of it? Well, so the, uh, it, it happened a lot, still happens a lot, that, mm-hmm. that uh, the question that people want to know and it gets asked of my brother and sister and me all the time by journalists is, what was it like? What was it like? to grow up in your family with that larger than life person for a father. And so um, I developed this short answer, which was, well, it wasn't boring. Uh, that was the short answer, but the longer answer is my book. And because it wasn't boring, uh, there was a book to write about it. And, and it's true that you know we grew up in this incredible epicenter of, of mid 20th century culture and all the luminaries thereof who lived in New York City were all, you know, coming in our door and sitting at our dinner table and singing songs around the piano in the living room after dinner and, and all of that. And so it, it was a pretty dazzling uh, environment to grow up in. But, you know, when you're a little kid, you don't know who your parents' friends are. You have absolutely no frame of reference for who they might be in the world. They're just your parents' friends. So right. it, it took a while for my brother and later our sister and me to put it together that, that our household and the people who came into our household were not your average household. It took a while to figure it out. So um, we also get asked a lot, you know, when did you realize how famous your dad was? And the reason that my classmate Lisa called me famous father girl to tease me in second grade is precisely because my dad was on television mm-hmm. doing the young people's concerts. Mm-hmm. And that was really what made him so famous because everybody watched TV and everybody was watching the same small handful of programs because there, there were only the three networks and a couple of local stations and everybody had one TV in their house. When I talk to young people about my dad, I love telling them this. And I always say, so go ahead, count them up. How many screens do you have in your house? Go ahead. You have to count all the TV monitors and all the laptops and all the tablets and all your phones. And like, have you run out of fingers yet? And they usually have. And it's a great way to explain, to illustrate how different the world was back when I was growing up because the entire family, all the generations would sit down together in front of that single TV in the living room and all watch the same thing together. And that's one of the reasons why my dad's Young People's Concerts with the Philharmonic had such an enormous impact because everybody watched them together. So anyway, uh, the joke answer that my brother and sister and I came up with to the question, when did you figure out how famous your father was. And there, there is some truth to this, but it is a, a little bit our gag. Is a, We say it's when we were watching the Flintstones and Betty and Wilma were on their way to the Holly Rock Bowl to hear Leonard Bernstone conduct. Yeah, and that's pretty awesome. That was pretty awesome. It was like, oh my God, <laughs> he was, they mentioned him on the Flintstones? He must have really right. had a big time. We've made it. We've made it. I Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's also really interesting how mean kids can be. The idea that taking, you know, your father's craft and generosity and the things that he was putting out into the world, which we all are still the beneficiaries of. I mean, I was reading this article and Gustavo, who we were just speaking of, talked about what those concerts meant to him. And now he's this world beloved, renowned conductor. And that's a part of his legacy. And so, I don't know, it really, it hurts my heart for little Jamie that that happened in second grade. But who wrote the book? Huh, Lisa? Jamie did. 
<laughs> yeah. Does Lisa have a book? Again. That's right. Well, I want to talk about that because, you know, so much of, of the story is how do you find and forge your own identity when you are really, I mean, your other, you know, godfather or surrogate godfather is Mike Nichols. I mean, the list is endless. Something in you decided that it was okay to write this book and and to tell also the story that that you know you describe in the book as being rumors when you're young at Tanglewood about your dad's sexuality and his interests outside of the marriage not just maybe having an affair but maybe having an affair with a man and how do you protect your mom and what is your, I mean it is so layered and you're like a teeny person yourself and so in some ways you you take this rumor and you go here's here are the facts on the ground as I understand them. Um, do you have to, and also just revealing personal things, do you sit down with your family, your siblings and go, how are you with this? Oh, did I ever? Okay. I, I told both my brother and sister, and we're very close, the three of us. I told my brother and sister when I when it first came up that, that maybe I was going to write this book. Mm-hmm. And, it, and the timing was that because 2018 was our dad's centennial, that was the year that, that the book would presumably come out, right? So the, that was the timing. The timing was right. And I told my brother and sister that they had total veto power mm-hmm. over anything in this book that they were uncomfortable about. If they didn't like it, I would either take it out or rewrite it, whatever they said was okay. And otherwise, I, I could not have begun the project. And in the end, they were incredibly supportive, more so than I expected. And they really gave me permission to tell the story the way I felt it went down and really the way they did, too. So uh, they pretty much were completely supportive all the way along in the whole process. What is what was the response to sort of all that was exposed, the good, bad, the ugly, the hilarious, the brilliant, all of it? What was your takeaway from people reading it, your your version of it, your your living of it? Well, my personal experience of this book is that it was a huge success because even though I actually don't know how many copies it has sold, I for some reason I was never able to to uh, get that precise information, even to this very day. But um, I did a lot of book talks. I went on the road a lot and, and you know, gave the book talk that authors give and then signed books afterwards. And uh, those book talks were so gratifying. They were such wonderful experiences because, you know, there is this Bernstein fan base out there and they were so curious to get this personal take on what my dad was like and what his, you know, his home life was like and, you know, this sort of intimate portrait. And so people would turn out for these book events in huge numbers. And then in the Q&A, they would have all these fantastic questions and also comments and and then would come up afterwards and they would all have to share because, you know, they had all either watched him on TV, bought his records, knew his shows, or or had met him, or they all had stories, and they all had to share their stories. And so I was getting this fantastic, you know, zero degrees of separation experience of my father being reflected back at me from all these incredibly enthusiastic and engaged people in my book talk audiences all over the country. And I was still doing it two years ago when COVID hit and then all the book talks just moved over to zoom and on we went. Uh, So it's, you know, it's, it's been an incredible rewarding ongoing experience. Oh, but I have to ask one more thing. I have to add one more thing. Yeah. So, you know, these, these uh, fans of my dad's are not so young anymore. Um, You know, it was my dad's centennial. So of course his contemporaries would be really old and there were younger people who grew up with him, but even they are aging uh, swiftly along. And so these tended to be older audiences. So over the past couple of years, I've been really pondering what to do 
to, uh, to, to tell the story of who my dad was to younger people and to, and to figure out a way to get them to understand why he still matters in our world today, especially young musicians. It turns out that if you go to a college music program or even a conservatory, they don't really know that much about Leonard Bernstein anymore. They don't really know anything much. Yeah, they've probably heard of West Side Story and maybe a couple other of my dad's pieces and they know he was a conductor, of course, and maybe they've heard his recordings, but they don't really have any broader context for who he was. And so I am developing this talk that I can give to music students. And, you know, it'll be like a sort of hour long presentation with Q&A afterwards and a nice PowerPoint with photographs and video clips and stuff like that, where, where I will explain to all these young people why Leonard Bernstein still matters in the world. And in fact, why he is the, the, the uh, role model for today's young musicians who are no longer being encouraged to stay in an ivory tower and practice until it's perfect and then go out in the world. No, no, now you go out into your community and you share your music and you use it to make the world a better place, which is exactly what my father did his whole life as a musician. And so, you know, and he did it in a hundred different ways, both in his conducting and in his composing. And so by talking about all of this, it's, it's a way of showing young people how he is, you know, the granddaddy of citizen artists, which is what young musicians aspire to be today. That is so, yes, artist is activist. And I mean, that's such an incredible, let me tell you what is also in, in one swift, uh, one fell swoop maybe going to do this is uh, Bradley Cooper's movie. If you, th- <laughs> you think about the power uh, to reach another generation, I, I have a friend who Bradley showed, I'm sure you've seen it too, a little you know, clip of what he's been working on and, and uh, in terms of how he is transforming into your father in this oh, film. I know. It's eerie. I mean, it is a very hard thing to imagine if you don't have his iPhone in front of you to see what he's been working on. Um, but I think... From what I understand, that was also perhaps a song, a Spielberg project that that got handed over to to Bradley Cooper, or is that a mythology around it? What do you know well, about it? Well, it's even more complicated than that. It was okay. going to be a Martin Scorsese pro- project. He was going to direct it, and it may be that Spielberg was involved as a producer. Got but it. Scorsese was supposed to direct it, and and there was a script that was developed. And then the, the project just was not getting there. And Scorsese was distracted by all sorts of other things he was working on. And then in the end, the whole uh, project was acquired by Bradley Cooper. But Spielberg remains the executive producer. Amblin, you know, uh, Spielberg. Sure. And so tell me uh, how much or how little your family has been involved in, in that biopic Right. Well, I mean, it isn't strictly speaking a biopic because it doesn't tell our dad's life. It okay. actually is. Um, it, it's it's a portrait of a marriage is what it actually is. It's really about uh, Lenny and his wife, Felicia, our parents. And so because it, that's what it focuses on, it, it just extracts certain parts of our dad's life. It's not a it's not a thoroughgoing First, okay. he grew up here, and then you went to school there. It's not like that at yes. all. Yes. So okay. It's 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 a very interesting project. It's really unusual, and Bradley Cooper is one of those total immersion maniacs. I mean, he is all in with this project, and he's really interested in evoking authenticity. And so, the degree to which he is inhaling all things Leonard Bernstein is unbelievable. And, you know, he's come to our family place in Connecticut to look at it and to sort of breathe the DNA, you know, and, and he's been studying with a voice coach to learn how to speak in this very idiosyncratic manner that my dad 
had of speaking. And I don't even know how my dad acquired that because, I mean, he grew up in New England, so he has that little Boston thing going on, but it's really more like his Harvard professors must have sounded and less the way his own parents sounded because they were immigrants from Ukraine and they didn't sound like that at all. So I think he sort of created it for himself in some way. But anyway, so Bradley is learning how to sound like that and is also, you know, working with, with this insanely gifted Japanese makeup artist to basically sculpt Bradley's face to look like Leonard Bernstein at several ages too, because it goes, you know, from the 1940s to the 1960s, 1980s. And so there are all these different Lenny's uh, at different points in his life. I mean, it's a lot. It's just a lot that, that Bradley has taken on. And wait, is it Carrie Mulligan? No. Who's yes. playing your, it's Carrie playing. And, and do we know who's playing little Jamie? No, we do not. But, you know, whoever it is, is probably somebody we don't know that well, because she will be uh, mostly a teenager or in her early 20s. Although I guess Jamie's age changes also. There's a 14-year-old Jamie and there's a 21-year-old Jamie and then there's a 30-something-year-old Jamie Jamie with children and, you know, like that. It's unbelievable. How old was, was Jamie when she's sitting in a room in the Dakota and hears gunshots and, and it's John Lennon. Oh, oh, well, at 1980, what was it? 1982, I think it was, or one, because we just had the anniversary last year, right? Yeah, the 40th yeah. anniversary, so I guess it was 1981. And therefore I was uh, uh, 39. Five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, I think. You're really good at music, but I did not mean to make this a math <laughs> test. <laughs> yeah, math, not my strong Okay, 52, 62, 72, 82. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I was 29 years old. Pardon me. Yeah. 29 yeah. years old. Yeah. That's how and so old you I was were, on that night. And you happened to be back home. Uh, and you know, it was the night after the Kennedy Center honors. You are kidding me. I'm not kidding you. We had just come back that very morning on the shuttle from Washington, D.C., from that unbelievable event. And we walked right past that guy at the front gates of the Dakota because he was always there. That guy who later that night shot John Lennon. We walked right past him. Wow. And you got to meet him. I mean, so much of the book talks about, as, as is true for any child, like how do you connect with your parent? And for you and your dad, one of the ways it seems was a mutual love of the Beatles that, that yes. brought you both so much joy. And now one of those Beatles is living in your building. Not only was it one of the Beatles, it was my favorite Beatle. Yes, John Lennon was, you know, the earth and the sky and everything in between to me. And there he was living in the building. So needless to say, I, I was in a dither about that all the time. And if you ran into him in the corridor, it was like you, you'd have I'd have to sort of catch my breath. Um, and then every year in those days, they used to have a, a party in the courtyard for all the residents of the building. And it was a potluck and everybody would bring stuff. And John and Yoko brought all this macrobiotic food that nobody had any interest in. And, and they were very anti-sugar. But my best friend, Anne, and I found ourselves at the dessert array table, standing next to John Lennon, who wasn't supposed to eat that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and we were all talking about, you know, what to have. And there, there were so many choices. And John Lennon really said in his Liverpool accent, I want something mushy and disgusting. And Anne and I really had to go in a corner and hyperventilate for a while. You're like, I'm dead. This is insane. <laughs> I mean, who, all right. So, so just to kind of take us through, who else was living in that building? Oh, as I say on the sixth page of my book, let the name dropping begin. Yeah. Um, well, you know, back in those days, I guess that, John Lennon was the biggest celebrity in the building. But who else was there? Roberta Flack lived there. And 
and and Lauren Bacall, Betty Bacall, who was our right. family friend. And she lived exactly above us, two floors above. We were on the second floor and she was on the fourth floor. So she used to walk down the two flights and pound on our kitchen door and, and just barge in and say, what's going on? You know, she was I like love, that. I love uh, Julia. Uh, yes, Julia, we call Julia, pardon me, Julia, um, is such a vibrant, beautiful character in your story and, and member of your family, the woman who took care of all of you for a very long time. Right, in both, in, in subsequent generation too. She helped take your care kids of us. Yeah. That's amazing. And so, and so do you feel like you have, do you have two or three kids? I have two. I have two kids. Do you feel like, because of the work you do, because of the book you wrote, because of the amount of time you spend traveling the globe, whether it's talking about the piece mass, other pieces, all the ways in which you, you know, as you've described, talk about music and bring so much of your knowledge of both your own knowledge and your dad's story to the world. Do you feel like your kids have a sense of your, of the, who their grandparents were, both your oh, mom that's and really dad? Good. It's a great question. It's a great question because uh, the answer is probably similar to that question's answer in our generation, my mm-hmm. brother and sister and me, because we, in, during our dad's lifetime, we never thought about his legacy. We, you know, he was just daddy and we liked doing all the daddy things with him, you know, uh, eat barbecued steak or and corn on the cob or play tennis or word games or, you know, whatever we were doing as a family. And we never thought about how it would fall to us to, uh, you know, take care of his legacy after he was gone. So mm-hmm. it wasn't until he was no longer physically there that we even began thinking about such things. And I have a feeling that it will be kind of similar for our kids who are not particularly up close and personal with who our dad was. And, and in some cases, maybe even keep a careful distance because it's just all sort of too much. But once our generation is gone, then they may uh, find themselves uh, having a new attitude about who he was and, and how it falls to them to keep his memory in the world. Right, like the literal handing, in this case, it's quite literal, of the baton to the next generation to keep it going. You're not there yet. Yeah. The handing of the baton is invisible Mm -hmm. because it's just a thing that happens when you suddenly realize, oh, hey, the baton's in my hand. Yeah. And, you know, I hadn't thought about this before. So I have a feeling, I mean, I'm just speculating, but I have a feeling that that's, what is likely to happen with our kids' generation. Yeah, yeah. Um, Before I ask you, and I hope you won't mind, I just, I loved it so much and I would love it if you would read in your own voice some of the book to my listeners, um, a passage maybe that appeals to you. But did you keep journals when you were young? I mean, your, your memories are so visceral and the way you share them, you really have this beautiful ability to, to make the reader, uh, you were so generous to allow us to feel like we were growing up with you. Um, not oh, peeking you. in, but experiencing it really side by side with you. It's just so, so deeply, deeply felt the experience of reading this book. Thank um, you. Uh, yes, I did keep journals, but not... Yes not until I was older. So one of the tricks that I had to perform in writing the book uh, was that the first part of the book when I'm very young was written in a very different way from the part later on when I had the source material of my journals to refer to. So my, my whole idea in the early years was to evoke everything in a sensory way because when you're a little kid, that's how you experience the world sure yeah. sound and smell and touch I mean that because you don't have that much language yet and you don't have frames of reference for anything and so you're you're it's it's like being a newborn except you you keep going and it changes but but basically you're you're being assaulted by all this 
sensory information, and then you have to make sense of it all. So I was, if that, that's how the early chapters were written. But then I had to make sure that, that I didn't all of a sudden lurch into another mode when I yeah. got to a point where I could use my journal. So that was part of, of the crafting what it is was, so seamless. It, I was it, like, what does she have a three-year-old? Was she doing the artist way at three? Like, how does she have all of this stuff going? It was incredible. I also just love how close your father was to his siblings. And I love how you and your siblings saw that and in many ways mirrored it in your own relationships. It's just beautiful. Oh, thank you. Well, we sure did have good role models for that. Yeah incredible i mean literally a secret language not just a sibling language i mean the layers and layers in which your family communicated with each other um there's a book about your mom that should come out someday too because it sounds like she was just the most gifted beautiful patient frustrated all the things that you would be um artistically and as a spouse married to a larger than life person like your dad I think Carrie Mulligan is a fantastic choice to to play her in Bradley Cooper's film so I cannot wait to see what she's going to do wow wow what a thing to look forward to we need things to look forward to right now that's a yeah we do Um, all right I'm going to have you read and then I'm going to ask you to share a little known fact about yourself before we we finish this conversation. Oh. You can choose the order in which you want to do it, but but you might want to stall and read for a minute, or we can we can. Oh, a little known fact. Yeah. Uh oh, I, I I forgot to, and that's that's the title of your it show. Is. I, I should is. have I should have known you were going to ask me this. It's okay. You've written a book filled with them, so maybe there's a way. Well, but now they're they... known, so they don't count. <laughs> Wait, right? so yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I can't pick a fact from my book because now no, it's wrong. That's cheating. That's cheating. cheating. And I know you love games. You're very competitive and you're not a cheater. Right. Let the record reflect. <laughs> not cheating. You're not, JB. Well, you know what? I'm not perfect. There have probably been instances. Okay. When I've cheated. One or two. When I, when I play Scrabble online, this is a little known fact. When I play Scrabble online, every once in a blue moon, I, I do a little cheating and I go to that, uh, there's, a, there's an app or a website where you can ask it to anagram a given number of letters for you and it will give you all the options. That's called cheating. And I have occasionally been so frustrated that I resorted to that uh, website without telling my opponent. Okay, I, I put I it out I appreciate your humanity. And your your you're, <laughs> you're opening up in such a deep way with your little little fact. I love it. Okay, I I'm thrilled now that Jamie Bernstein is going to read to us from her gorgeous memoir, Famous Father Girl, by Harper Collins. They are Harper Collins published it, and now it's out in paperback as well. So dealer's choice. I love having a hardcover copy, but if you guys want to order the paperback. That's okay too. Also, you have the option of listening to me narrating the audiobook. Beyond just this paragraph we're gonna get, we can hear the whole thing. Exactly. So I love that. I love yeah. that. If you're not sick of my voice by the end of this conversation, you have the option of getting a, a lot more of it. I love on the it. Audiobook. So what I thought I would read is the very end of the book, the concluding couple of paragraphs. So I hope that's okay. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Goes like this. As Alexander, Nina, and I go about sharing the official legacy of Leonard Bernstein, we cling all the harder to the father we lived with, the daddy who scrubbed his ears so vigorously that the twin mounds of soap suds slid down his shoulders the daddy who sucked the last green morsel out of a lobster thorax, the daddy who taught us the rubber balloons vaudeville routine, or who played the moldy man game with us in the hammock, turning uh, the John Lennon poem into a sung round, and who, who recited Lewis Carroll on the pool floater. But nothing conveys daddy's deepest essence better than his own music. The notes he strung together are as uniquely identifiably him as a fingerprint. 
We listen to the wrenching violin solo in the slow movement from Serenade, the rollicking profanation from the Jeremiah Symphony, or the jagged propulsive rumble from West Side Story. And there he is in all his tenderness, his raunchiness, his intellectual panache, his agonizing over God, his despair over humanity, his cautious but dogged hope that we're all getting somewhere. When we listen to that music, it's the next best thing to getting a hug from daddy himself. Except, damn it all, we still miss the too tight squeeze that made us yelp, the nicotine breath, the scratchy brown bathrobe. Thank you, Jamie Bernstein. Thank you for the book. Thank you for being on the podcast today. And thank you for all you're doing to share the power of music with the world. Thank you. Thank Thank you, you. Ilana. One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out. And I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.